Genesis chapter 6, verses 9 through 22. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing, of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark, to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, and of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten, and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Lord God, we thank you for the revelation of your will, your character, your ways, your gospel to us in your word. We pray that you would bless it to us, that you would fix our minds and uh, hearts upon what you have told us, that we might lay it up, that we might practice it in our lives, that we might be built up unto holiness and comfort. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In this chapter, or this passage that we just read, we have the beginning of a new section of uh, Genesis. As you'll remember, uh, Genesis is divided into portions that begin with, these are the generations of, and then uh, gives a name. It had begun with the creation account uh, of, of seven days, and then it had said, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. In other words, this is what happened to them. This is what came of them. Um, and then told of more detail of the creation of man and his fall and how the curse came upon the earth. Uh, then we had the generations of Adam and told about what happened to his, uh, uh, what happened to him, what happened to his children, his, his offspring. Um, we had also, and that was, that was the last one that we looked at, uh, chapters 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. And now we come to the generations of Noah. What became of Noah? He had been introduced at the end of the genealogy of, of uh, Seth in chapter 5. And now it picks up with uh, his uh, story, uh, the account of how God delivered him from the judgment that came upon the earth in the flood. 
And in this passage in particular, he, God, reveals what he's about to do to Noah. God reveals both his judgment and his grace. He reveals the judgment that he would send as well as the salvation that he would provide for Noah, for his household, and even for a remnant of all creation, all the animals. And that is true for Noah. That's true throughout Scripture. We find here uh, an example that God reveals his judgment and his grace that you might flee from the wrath to come and receive his salvation. Why, why did he tell Noah that there was going to be a flood coming? Why does God today tell us that there is a wrath that is yet to come? Uh, why does he tell the Ninevites that they were going to be judged? Why did he send the prophets to Israel saying that Babylon was going to conquer? He reveals his judgments, not merely to bring people into terror, but that they might turn, that they might be saved. And in accordance with that, he also presents the good news. He also presents the, the grace that he provides for those who turn to him with faith, uh, that he provides a way of salvation. And in this particular occasion, the form that that takes is an ark, an ark that he instructs Noah to build and to build in accordance with God's instructions. And so in this passage, I want to look first at Noah and his generation, verses 9 through 12. Uh, and then secondly, God's revelation to Noah, what he told Noah. And then lastly, the last verse, which is very important, Noah's believing obedience, that he did all that God had commanded him. So first, verses 9 through 12, Noah and his generation. Verses 9 through 12 present a contrast between Noah and the rest of the world in his day. Noah, unlike the rest, he walked with God. While outside his household, the rest of mankind had corrupted their way. They had filled the earth with violence. But Noah followed in the ways of Abel in the ways of Enoch, and called upon the name of the Lord, while the rest of the world took off after Cain and his descendant Lamech. Even though the world had powerful and mighty men, we will find that it was better to walk with God than to exalt oneself against him. Noah was a light in the darkness, a city on the hill, or as Peter calls him, a herald of righteousness. Noah did not walk in the way of sinners, but he walked with God. We are told here that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. He walked with God as Adam and Eve had done in the garden. He walked with God as Enoch had done during his time on earth. Though he was born with the corrupt image of his father, Adam, uh, Noah had come to God and had been received by God's grace. It's not as if God had looked at all the earth, had been gone for a while, and then noticed Noah and looked at, oh, look how he's being so righteous. I better save him. Uh, Noah, Noah was already walking with God before God revealed the flood uh, to him. God was, Noah was already walking with God. God was already with him. God had placed enmity between Noah and the serpent. Do you remember how in chapter 3 God uh, intervened? 
how he would he told the woman that I will put enmity between you and the serpent. That the conversion of the sinner is due to God's grace. That uh, God would be the one to separate the woman and her offspring from the serpent whom they had aligned themselves with through sin. And the same for Noah. Noah walked with God. And that is how he was one who was righteous, one who was blameless in his generation. God had converted him. Nor would we say that Noah was righteous according to strict judgment. We talked about that earlier. If, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? For with you there is forgiveness that you might be feared. That's Psalm 130. And so Noah was only regarded as righteous because his sins were not held against him, because he also had been born again by God's grace. And unlike the world around him, in contrast to them, he did practice sincere and genuine righteousness. The word for blameless has the idea of of wholeness, uh, that he was not double-minded, he was not a hypocrite, he was one, though, who served God from the heart and faith and in godly fear, repenting of his sins. And God approves and accepts this obedience from his people as pleasing to him, not because it would withstand his judgment, but because it is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ. And so Noah stood out from the rest of the world around him. His course of life was not marked by the violence and rebellion of the world, but by obedience to God. Noah was blameless or whole. And we find similar language elsewhere in Scripture. God told Abraham, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. Job 1 describes Job as uh, one that was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. In fact, it's Noah and Job and Daniel that are mentioned in Ezekiel 14, 14 as examples of righteousness. Now, they were examples of righteousness, but in context, Ezekiel was saying that, um, that Israel was so far gone that even if these men were among them, Israel would not be saved by the presence of that illustrious remnant. It says, um, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. In the New Testament, we find a testimony of Zechariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist, that they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, there are plenty of examples in the Bible of the sins of the godly, uh, of those who were uh, believers uh, and yet who who sinned sometimes tragically and publicly and grievously, enough examples like that to give you encouragement and comfort that there is mercy and forgiveness with God. But there's also examples like this one of Noah to give you encouragement concerning the power of his grace to transform a life and to make it burn brightly with righteousness, to make it stand out from the world around it that there would be those with salt that had not lost its saltiness, that there would be light that the earth would even see and give glory to God. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation, and sin no longer has dominion over you. 
the remnant of sin dwells in you and strives against you, but you are in a radically different situation than the person who is unconverted. You can do good. Your good deeds are pleasing to God, despite their imperfections. That's not the basis of your standing before him. And yet, you don't have to be discouraged that it doesn't matter whatever I do, it's all going to be displeasing to God. No, God delights in the service of his people because we have a mediator with him. And so Noah was righteous and blameless in his generation. But how was he able to to do this? What was his secret? How did he maintain a righteous course amid a day that encouraged wickedness that more and more was corrupting its way on the earth? Well, he did so by God's grace, and he did so by walking with God. If you only look to man's opinion, you'll either just do righteousness for the praise of man and fall into the trap of the Pharisees, or you'll follow the bad examples around you and corrupt your way as well. And so you must elevate God's word above all opinions and hold fast to him, to walk with God, and he will never lead you astray. Walking with God implies more than simply walking before God, walking in his presence. It implies that you have to be in someone's presence to walk with them, but it also implies communication, listening to him, uh, speaking to him, maintaining fellowship with him, and being the anchor, therefore, in the midst of the stormy world. And it is good to walk with God. Uh, Like Noah, hold fast to the Lord, despite the pressures to compromise from you. And do so from the heart. And by that, I mean sincerely, uh, with faith, from fear and love. Depart from the corrupt ways of the world and mortify them within you. And think of this as well. And I've mentioned this before. Noah persevered in this course of life, this way, for centuries, for hundreds of years, amid an evil world. One that's darker than our day today, as hard as that might be to imagine. How difficult do people find it to maintain a steady course of life for a decade, or two, or three, or 70, you know, 70 years, 80 years? That seems like a difficult struggle to endure to the end, to finish well, uh, to hold steady. Of course, we can, you know, it is done by God's grace, but we find that there are many challenges and difficulties how much more so for Noah. But all Christians are called not merely to a point in life, not merely to a decision, but to a way, a path, a walk, a race to be run with endurance. So let Noah's example encourage you, let it provoke you, let it inspire you as an example of steadfastness amid a dark day. So Noah is standing out from the world around him. Verses 13 through 21 tell us how God revealed his will to Noah. That Noah became a prophet. uh, That he uh, received God's will directly to him of what was going to happen. In verses 13 through 21, God tells Noah that he had determined to make an end of all flesh because the earth is filled with violence through them, that he would destroy them. He tells Noah to build an ark. He tells him how to build the ark. He tells him to lay up food for the animals. He tells that he's going to bring the animals with him. 
He tells him that judgment is going to come with a flood of waters, but that he would establish his covenant with Noah and that they would enter the ark and be saved. We learn from this passage that God will not let the earth go on its way to corruption. God will not abandon this earth and let it go its own way. He will act in judgment and in grace. Peter, the apostle in his second epistle, uses the flood as an analogy for the final judgment, which is to come. He uses the flood twice, in fact, as an example of the judgment of the ungodly and the deliverance of the godly. God will sweep away the wicked unto destruction. He is a just God, but he'll leave behind those who receive his salvation by faith. And in both cases, in the flood and in the present, he delays. He does not execute it right away. Uh, Sin calls out for judgment, and yet he delays exercising patience, patience that is meant to lead people to repentance. And he makes the future known ahead of time so that people might turn, that he might save his people. He establishes his covenant of grace and saves those who trust in him and saves his creation as well. Now look at verses 12 through 13. uh, There are words that are translated differently in English, but are the same word in Hebrew, the word for corrupt and the word for uh, destroy. It's the same Hebrew word, obviously with different nuance there. The flesh had corrupted its way. The earth had been corrupt. And therefore God says, and I therefore will destroy the world. And we might say that since the earth was ruined and flesh had ruined its way, so God determined to ruin them with the earth, a punishment that would fit the crime. God acted justly here in bringing a judgment upon the earth. You know, on Facebook recently, someone was contacting the church somewhat mockingly, saying, why did God send the flood when he knew it wouldn't solve his problem? Um, But replied that God sent the flood because it was a just judgment upon those who had rejected him and persisted despite his patience uh, in their ungodly ways. As chapter 6, verse 5 said, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so he was just to withdraw all the blessings that he had created, that he had provided, that he even had sustained amidst their rebellion much longer than they deserved. Among other sins, the one that is mentioned here are sins of violence. They had filled the earth with violence out of bitterness or anger or envy or pride and greed. Like Cain and Lamech, man bites and devours himself causes pain and damage to one another, killing one another, striking down the image of God. That's something that's going to be addressed again in chapter 9 after the flood. Now God determines, therefore, to send a flood of waters. Why does he say a flood of waters? Isn't a flood always by waters? The word here for flood is not the ordinary word for flood. It's like a word for cataclysm, a cataclysm of waters. This is a, something that's going to kill everything that is on the earth. Uh, from the powerful, powerful Nephilim to the lowly mouse, it will sweep all the way. But verse 18 has a vital pivot. But, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you and your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Noah was given a warning. The judgment was coming. He was given a command, build an ark, and he was also given a promise 
A promise that he could hold to by faith. A promise that God would save him and his household. This is the first explicit reference to a covenant in the Bible. The concept's already been around. We saw the covenant with man in the garden, covenants of grace renewed with man then outside the gar- or after the fall of man. This is the first time, though, the word is used. Um, and, and we find in this passage how uh, God makes a covenant with people and he determines to protect them. He determines, therefore, to save them that the salvation is an expression of his covenant with them. When God makes a covenant with people, he makes a bond of fellowship and loyalty with them. He takes them under his care, and he promises them life and blessing. God is uh, bound to protect his people, as a Lord is bound to protect his vassals, or a country will come to the aid of its ally, or a husband is bound to protect and provide for his wife. So God binds himself to save his people, protect his people, and so he will save Noah from the flood which is to come. Uh, To establish a covenant here can refer to either creating a covenant or reaffirming a covenant. The point is that God's covenant with Noah would be proved and manifested in his salvation from the flood. God would establish his covenant, making it stand by providing an escape from judgment through the waters in the ark. Now, does salvation through waters, you know, with a covenant being made, sound remind you of any other part in Scripture? Maybe something that the Israelites would be familiar with, where they were brought through waters, and then there was a covenant that was, like, reaffirmed afterwards. The, the salvation of the flood is parallel to the salvation through the Red Sea. Uh, we might even see... A, a parallel in the Passover, where within the houses marked by blood, there was safety, but outside there was judgment. And then as they went through the Red Sea, through the waters, that some people were flooded, some people were drowned. And yet the Israelites, by faith, went through, uh, were saved. And then at Mount Sinai, the covenant that God had made with their fathers, on the basis of which he had saved them, was reaffirmed and expanded there, On Mount Sinai. Similarly, God would deliver Noah and his household on the basis of his covenant, would bring them safely through the waters, and there would have a covenant ceremony which would affirm and expand upon that afterwards on the basis of his salvation. And of course, there's another parallel too. Peter compares the flood to baptism, and that's why we read earlier 1 Peter uh, chapter 3 that we are brought safely through waters, that we are marked by water and uh, are, are saved through Jesus Christ. And the covenant of grace, the new covenant, is affirmed with us, that he will save us, that he is our God and we are his people. He is our Savior and our King. And there is safety within and there is judgment outside. The ark, therefore, is a symbol of Christ and the church, the kingdom that is protected from judgment by its Savior. Now, throughout the world, the nations preserved stories of this flood. Uh, Nations far and near on on, on different continents throughout the earth, uh, which would make sense if all people are descended from Noah, that such a tremendous event would be recorded in the memories of nations throughout the earth, even as it's also recorded in the fossils and rocks throughout the earth, too. But as the people told these stories in pagan nations, sometimes the details got changed. And so it's both interesting to compare the flood 
in the Bible to the flood stories outside to see the similarities, but also the, the differences. For example, in the Babylonian stories, they said the flood was sent because humanity had multiplied too much and was too noisy, uh, or for no good reason at all. But the Bible says it was sent because of man's sin and violence. They taught that man's problem was overpopulation. But the biblical account makes it plain that man is to be fruitful and multiply. What was wrong was that he had filled the earth with violence. The man's sin was what had caused things to go wrong. The Babylonians said that the flood was sent by the gods in a council, but one god disagreed and let the news leak to one of his favorite followers and allowed him to, to escape the flood. But the Bible says that both judgment and mercy were sovereignly decided by the one God. The Babylonians told of how the, the, the gods became frightened by the flood and, and began to regret it. And also they began to get hungry because they didn't have all the sacrifices that the people had been feeding them. But the Bible portrays God as sovereign and mighty over all the floods and over all mankind. They also said that the boat was built as a cube with equal dimensions. That would have been incredibly unstable uh, in the flood. But the Bible describes a boat with more realistic dimensions that would have made it stable and seaworthy, making it uh, wider than it is tall, making it long uh, as uh, a more realistic ship that doesn't really have to get anywhere. All it has to do is stay afloat. Now, the logistics of the ark, because there's been a lot of research done into that. I'm not going to get into all the details here. But uh, briefly, though, with the descriptions that are given in Genesis 6, we find that the shape of the ark is 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits tall. We don't use cubits anymore. That's approximately from, you know, someone's, uh, the length of one's forearm, uh, maybe with their hand as well, about 18 inches, I think, is what it's typically regarded. It's possible it was longer, 20 inches, so that would change the size of the ark, depending on which cubit is being used. But if it's 18 inches, it would be 400, uh, 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. And this would have made a stable ship, unlike the popular images in children's books that are always super top-heavy and look like it's going to flip over at a moment's notice. The size also would have provided enough, enough room for all the animals. The volume of this there is estimated to be about like 500 railroad stock cars, and it would be divided into three levels with rooms and cages and, and storage facilities within it. But you might say there's a lot of different kinds of animals on the earth. Even with that size, could they all fit? But when it says two of every kind, it doesn't refer to what we call a species. Uh, but could refer to something more like a genus or a, a family, um, something that there is variation within the kind. Only two dogs, for example, would be needed, not all the different breeds of dogs that we have today. Also, God doubtless brought young animals that could live to breed in the new world. Uh, and so picture not full-size elephants or dinosaurs, but young ones uh, that would be much more manageably sized. Additionally, some animals would not need the ark and are not mentioned going onto the ark, like fish. Uh, it mentions birds, animals, which is sometimes translated cattle, it's referring to land animals, and creeping things like reptiles. 
Noah's also told to store up food for them, and he had uh, time to do so. I don't think water would be hard to find at least the first 40 days of the flood. And the ark was made of a particular kind of wood, gopher wood. We don't know exactly kind of what the wood that is. It could be a, a kind of wood like cypress, or it could be a way to treat the wood. But in any case, it was a particular wood that God knew was going to uh, accomplish this job well. And it would be covered with pitch inside and out. All of this, though, is a tremendous project to be building an ark of this size, uh, to be accomplishing it all in a way so that it would be preserved, to make room for all the animals, to store up their food. And the size of this ark is one testimony to the universality of the flood. If it was a local flood, it would have been a lot simpler just to move outside of the region, which was going to be flooded, uh, to, for the animals to do so as well. If he could bring them to the ark, he could move them to a different region just as easily. But it's plain that the flood would kill everything on the earth, and if these animals and man was to survive, they would need to be on the ark. Well, God reveals his will to Noah. There's judgment coming. There is grace also provided. But in the last verse, we find it saying, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And that's the third point I want to look at. Noah's believing obedience. Noah set an example for us by receiving God's word with faith and obedience. He trusted God's way of salvation, that this was the way to survive the judgment to come. He trusted God that there was judgment coming, and he trusted that God's way of salvation uh, was true, and he also trusted in it personally for him. And he expressed that faith by obeying God's word. And so Hebrews 11:7 says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. That's a, it's a theme in Hebrews 11 that faith is, is confidence regarding things hoped for and things unseen. Something that was promised and told to Noah, which was not yet visible to him. And yet he took God's word by faith and trusted in his way of salvation. And he did this, building the ark for decades according to God's instructions before any sign of the flood was evident. And Noah and his household didn't come up with their own way to be saved. They didn't improve upon God's design. They didn't say, well, that doesn't sound right. We need to make it our own way. I think God would be pleased if we sought salvation in this way or that way. Always lead to salvation from the flood. All, everyone their own way. No, they did not presume to forge a path not described by God, but they took refuge in the salvation that he provided them. And so likewise, you and I ought not to seek salvation by any other means but that which God has provided. No other name but the name of Jesus Christ. The condition of the covenant of grace in every age is that of faith. Faith in God's mercy in Christ, whether it's presented by types and shadows or openly made known now in the new covenant. So do not forge your own way, but receive and rest upon his provision of salvation. Now Noah's faith expressed itself then in three ways, in reverent fear, in obedience, and in endurance. His reverent fear, that's the way Hebrews puts it, 
was a product of his faith. By faith, he constructed it in reverent fear. Reverent fear is a fruit of faith. It's not the kind of fear that causes you to run from God, not the kind of fear that causes you to hate God, but the kind of fear that causes you to heed God and his words, that takes him seriously. So exercise your faith by fearing the Lord. If he tells you to beware something, beware it. If he tells you, beware the love of money, beware covetousness, beware sloth, beware sexual immorality. Don't just, oh, that's interesting. (laughs) Have a little reverent fear. Beware them, believe him and flee. If he tells you judgment is coming and flee from the wrath to come, then believe him and take refuge in his mercy. If he tells you to beware the root of bitterness and the deceitfulness of sin, then nip the sin in the bud. You know, if you have a bud on the plant, you want to nip it before it starts to flower. Take that approach to sin because God has warned you. If he tells you, beware of false teachings and errors, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, then beware, believe him, earnestly reject them, and flee to his word. So by faith, fear. By faith, also obey. Noah's obedience was a product of his faith. He obeyed God because he believed him. So exercise your faith by obeying him. Do you trust him? Then do not fear to obey him. If a soldier trusts his captain, he will obey the captain's commands, even if it looks like folly. He said to charge here. It sort of doesn't look like a good idea to charge here, but he must have a plan. He must be good. Uh, He must be wise. I will follow his command. That is a reason he will be steadfast in that obedience. Perhaps if a soldier all seems lost, it's best to give up. Perhaps another way seems better, but his trust in his captain can overcome those thoughts and move the soldier to obey. If mere duty itself was not reason enough. Likewise, trust your God, his goodness his justice, and obey his commands. This is also one reason to desire stronger faith, that you might resist temptation and obey, as Noah did. It might have seemed uh, folly for him to be building this ark, uh, as yet the judgment was unseen, and yet he continued to do so, trusting God's word. And that brings us to the last fruit of faith here, endurance. His endurance was a product of his faith. And in Hebrews 11, that's kind of the main theme. You have need of endurance, so don't cast aside your confidence. Don't cast aside your faith. You're going to need it to endure. Noah was sustained over the decades by his faith in God's word. We don't know how long it took, how much time he had, perhaps 70 years, perhaps 90 years. But it took effort, it took sacrifices, it took perseverance, it took resources. And it was done in the midst of evil and unbelief and violence. But he pressed on because that's what God had told him. And so you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. That's what Hebrews 10 says. I don't know what tests or trials or temptations will come your way, but when they do, may they find you rooted and grounded by faith, ready to hold fast to God's word. May your roots be planted in good soil so that when the hot sun or the thorns come out, you may overcome them. 
and put forth fruit. So God reveals his grace and his judgment in his word. Why? So you might flee from the wrath to come. You might receive his salvation and in doing so have rest, have comfort, have strength. Noah could be confident that despite the prosperity of the wicked in his day, despite probably having to go by on some, uh, make sacrifices, not live maybe as wealth, wealthily, uh, richly, because he's putting all these resources in to build the ark. We don't know what particular trials he had, but he could do so confidently knowing that he would be standing when all was said and done, that he would be safe, and so would have reason to have comfort and strength. Receive God's word with faith so that, we, so that his word will do you good. If God had simply told Noah all of this and then Noah ignored it, he would not have benefited from it. Even if God's word produces a garden of Eden in the heart of your neighbor, it will do you no good without faith. And so receive his word with faith and act upon it by faith, embracing its promises, heeding its warnings, and obeying its commandments. In this way, may you, may all the church shine brightly amid the darkness as a herald of righteousness, even as Noah did in his generation. To God be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for your grace that you have shown to us, to all the nations through Jesus Christ, saving us from the consequences, the judgment upon our sins which we brought upon ourselves. We pray that you would strengthen us in the faith, that you would help us to hold fast to your promised salvation, that you would draw the nations to all the peoples, to our neighbors and to those whom we come across with, and indeed all of those throughout the world. We pray that you would bring them to this salvation as well, that they would find the safety of your covenant and your faithfulness within it. We pray that you would uh, strengthen us, that we might endure, that we might even shine brightly unto your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.